The following story is a true, detailed account of the redemption of two extremely vicious criminals named Jagai and Madai. They were divinely saved by God himself, who, in the person of Lord Chaitanya or Goranga, lived in Nadia, West Bengal, India, in the early 16th century, when he was about 23 years of age. The events about to be described vividly illustrate the highest expression of God's love, his compassion and mercy upon his deluded, misguided and fallen children. They are excerpted from the book Lord Goranga by Shishir Kumar Ghosh, who based his account on two famous Bengali biographies of Lord Chaitanya, namely the Chaitanya Bhagavat by Vrindavan Das Thakur and the Chaitanya Mangal by Lochan Das Thakur, both of whom were intimate companions of the Lord. And now Radio Krishna presents The Redemption of Jagai and Madai. Your narrator is Amala Bhaktadas. far and wide that Lord Sri Krishna had come down to earth as the son of a woman named Sachi. Some believed in the news and some did not. As a general rule, the highest classes, that is to say the Brahmins, refused to accept him, while the lower classes did so with eagerness. The Brahmins were interested in discrediting him. What the Lord indirectly preached was that the highest man was not the Brahmin, but the servant of the Lord, and that a servant of the Lord, if he belonged to the lowest class, was higher in status than a Brahmin who had no reverence for the Lord Almighty. Now this teaching was in direct opposition to that of the intellectual and spiritual Brahmins of India, who had held despotic sway in the country from time immemorial. They therefore tried to put down this new religion and its founder. The lower classes, on the other hand, flocked in a body to his standard. The powerful Brahmins did all that they could in their power to stamp out the religion of the Lord. But yet their leaders saw with dismay that the Lord was daily winning over to his side men from their ranks. His followers from the higher classes could be numbered by thousands, and from the lower classes by hundreds of times that number, though he had flourished only for a few months. His bhaktas or devotees were day and night engaged in worshipping Krishna. The town assumed quite a novel appearance. There was kirtan every evening in almost every house of the lower classes, and also in those of many of the higher. His bhaktas refused to behave like other people. They moved about like drunken men, men drunk with joy, the joy derived from serving Sri Krishna. They ate little and slept less, and kept themselves aloof from the general throng. The greater part of the external world disappeared from their view. They could think of or see nothing which did not belong to the Lord. In the street, if two of them met, they gazed at each other and laughed in the excess of their joy, and that was all. 
When they spoke, they spoke only of the Lord. What joy, said one. What a lovely Lord, said another. Sometimes they would meet in the street and then hold one another's hand and dance there before the public, though such exhibitions were considered quite unworthy of the position of a gentleman. But do men, when drunk, take note of public opinion? Why then should those who are drunk with bhakti fear the jeers and the insults of the public? Those who came to believe that God Almighty had really come and was visible at any moment had, of course, no sorrow. On the other hand, they roamed about as if each of them was an emperor, not that they were boisterous, aggressive, vain, or proud. Convinced of the fact that the mission of the Lord was to save mankind and that they had been chosen as instruments to serve his purpose, they felt a sincere brotherly feeling for every man and a detestation for everything sinful, mean, or improper. Their attitude and behavior exerted a powerful influence upon those with whom they came in contact. The most skeptical, seeing the change that had been wrought upon persons, some of whom were previously notorious sinners, and upon the bhaktas generally, began to yearn after similar good fortune. They wanted to be like the bhaktas, and they began to flock round them to be led to the Lord. Indeed, the bhaktas became so good and so attractive in every way that most men wished to be like them. Non-believers were thus induced to come to the Lord. To see him was, as a rule, to believe in him. That perfectly chiseled face, which seemed to be the incarnation of intelligence, innocence, simplicity, piety and love, carried with it a power which those who saw him could scarcely resist. The Lord could, of course, impart it at his free will. He had only to say, Be blessed with bhakti, and that was enough to throw a man into a trance, from which he rose a new man filled with bhakti, and sometimes prim or divine love, too. This power his bhaktas also began to acquire, one by one, and they also helped to extend the kingdom of the Lord. Others were converted in still more mysterious ways. There passes a man through the public streets, and he falls down in a trance. A crowd surrounds him, and he rises with the exclamation of, Hari! Hari! Which means, God! God! He becomes a bhakta from that moment. A child of five in the arms of his mother suddenly shows indications of the influence. He dances like one possessed, and exclaims, Hari! Hari! The heart of the Lord was kind, so that any sign of distress in others violently affected him. He loved sacrifice and loved those who had a sacrificing heart. He lived for others. He loved service and not authority. His advice to those who wanted to be a servant of the Lord, which is the path now sought to be followed by every Vaishnava, was embodied in a couplet of his which can be translated thus. That man is deserving of praising the Lord Hari who is lower in spirit than the grass, who is as patient as a tree, and who honors those who dishonor him. Mm -hmm.
He never took for himself the credit of any work, but always sought to transfer it to others. Indeed, his nature was such that he thought every man to be higher and better than himself. But the above amiable traits, though very praiseworthy, are yet human. Goranga was, however, something more than man. Radha, as the consort of Sri Krishna, is represented as standing on the left of her lord, with one eye fixed on him and the other on her attendant maids, who, of course, represent human creatures. She is the medium through whom human creatures attain to Sri Krishna. Radha's one eye, therefore, is constantly engaged in taking care of her beloved maids. Therefore, if Radha's love for Sri Krishna is boundless, her love for human beings is also boundless. Goranga sometimes represented Sri Krishna and sometimes Radha. When he sits on the sacred dais, he is Sri Krishna. When he weeps for Sri Krishna, he is Radha. So Lord Goranga had not only Radha's love for Sri Krishna, but also Radha's love for human creatures. Here is an ancient and well-known song in which the Lord is represented as addressing Nittai, also known as Nityananda, his chief follower. Come, Nittai, hold me fast. I am overtaken by indescribable misery. I had a mind to distribute the holy name to mankind, but the powerful name created a current in my heart. That current carries me away and has rendered me helpless. Nittai, where is there another friend excepting yourself to whom I can disclose the misery of my heart? And who will sympathize with me? Nittai, the thought of the miseries of men rends my heart. I owe debts to men, and I cannot redeem them. I have been made a captive on account of these debts. Where is the friend to procure my release? So Goranga clasped the neck of Nittai and bewailed. My heart breaks at the thought of the miseries of man. Alas, how are they to be saved? Who is to give them the name of Hari or Krishna? Who is to teach bhakti and remove their misery? When Garanga heard of the misdeeds of a sinner, he wept and betrayed such an anguish of soul that his companions thought that his heart would break. He would show more concern for the evil deeds of a wicked man than a doting father would do for those of his son or a doting wife for those of her husband. If the Lord as Radha had Radha's love for Sri Krishna, he had also Radha's love for human beings. He felt that he was, as Radha, responsible for the good behavior of human beings to Lord Krishna. He felt that he had a debt to discharge, a debt which he owed to humanity. It was for this that he addressed Nittai to procure his release for the debt by saving mankind. A sinner, therefore, was not an object of anger to him but of compassion, sympathy, and love. He exonerated the sinner from all blame, which he took upon himself.
One day, while in the midst of his bhaktas, the Lord addressed Nittai and Haridas, saying, Go to every man in the town, walk from door to door, tell them to worship Sri Krishna, who is the life of every man. Don't make a distinction between sinner and saint, intelligent and foolish, ignorant and learned, believer and non-believer, high and low, Brahman and Sudra. You go and save them all. Haridas and Nittai were selected for the purpose of proclaiming Sri Krishna for very good reasons. They were ascetics and strangers. They were incomparably pious, and they had acquired the power of imparting the Holy Spirit. Nittai and Haridas accepted the task with due humility. The duty that was imposed upon them was to start early in the morning, to travel from door to door, deliver the message, and then return home at noon. So they both started early the following morning. Their figures were commanding and attractive, though as devotees they had only pieces of rags wrapped around their loins. They proceeded with pride in their bearing and defiance in their eyes, and everybody could see that they were men who did not belong to the common throng. We refer to their pride and defiant spirit, but these were not like those of men of the world. Their pride and defiance proceeded from the knowledge that they were bearing an important message from an important personage. They felt that they were carrying messages of love and hope from their common father to their brothers. The magnitude of their task imposed upon them rendered them humble in spirit. They stand before a door and exclaim, Hare Krishna! This is the way ordinary mendicants seek their means of subsistence. The householder, upon hearing this, believing that beggars are at the door, hastens to give them alms in the shape of a handful of rice. They then look at the almsgiver with an imploring look and address him thus with folded hands. We don't beg rice of you, but to worship beloved Krishna who loves you so well. It takes some time for the almsgiver to realize the situation. When he does so, he is either permanently influenced or influenced for the time being or not moved at all. Indeed, people belonging to the higher classes, when thus addressed, would sometimes take offense. Learned men would address Nittai and Haridas thus, You ignorant and foolish men may make God of a man, but mind you, we have spent years seeking after knowledge. Better go elsewhere amongst the foolish and ignorant. Some would even go so far as to call them thieves, who had come to consider their places for stealing. Whenever there is a message from high, and it is delivered to the people, it is accepted. The people cannot resist it. A pretender may announce himself as such a messenger, but then his message, though it may be accepted by a few for a time, is sure to be ultimately rejected. The simple proclamation to love Krishna or serve Krishna would never have produced any effect upon the public if it had not been backed by some other force. In Nadia, the simple message proclaimed by Nittai and Haridas produced wonderful effects. Most men accepted it. It was because they were backed by that force which messiahs carry with them. But yet many did not. In fact, a few received the bearers of the message with ridicule, even insult. Now this Nittai did not like. So he said to Haridas, What kind of a command is this from our Lord to proclaim Sri Krishna to the people? He has no mercy upon us. For the Lord does not see 
that we are not only not accepted everywhere as we should be, but we are subjected to jeers, taunts, and other expressions of ill will. The experience was strange to Nityananda and Haridas, as it was to everybody else. After Buddha and his disciples, no religious character in India had tried to spread religion in this manner. Nittai did not mind the jeers, but he was grieved because everyone did not accept him as a messenger from God. He knew very well that he was not a cheater and that there was no mistake about the source of his mission. Why did not the Lord make his mission acceptable to everyone whom he, Nittai, addressed? Surely the Lord could have done so if he had wished. Let us go to proclaim Sri Krishna to Jagai and Matai, said Nittai to Haridas. And why to them, asked Haridas. And Nittai replied, because they are the most powerful men in this city and perhaps the greatest sinners in this world. If the Lord could make them accept Sri Krishna, that would be a miracle, which would lead the outside world to recognize our Lord. He does everything in secret, within closed doors, and the result is that people call us fools or knaves because we know that he is the Lord God himself, and they do not. These two Brahmin youths, Jagai and Madai, were nominally city chieftains of Nadia, but in reality they were absolute masters of the lives and properties of the citizens. Their master was Chan Kazi, the Muslim governor, who held his authority from the king of Gore. But practically, Jagai and Madai were the lords of the city. They used their power most atrociously. After collecting around them a band of ruffians, they maltreated the citizens in a manner which no human being would have borne patiently, except the savants of Nadia. Engrossed in their intellectual pursuits, they allowed Jagai and Madai to do whatever they liked. They took to drink, and, under its influence, began to commit outrages which spared neither men nor women. They robbed men, murdered those whom they did not like, and committed gross outrages upon women. They pitched their tents in various parts of the city as suited their purpose best, but their approach led the citizens to fly for protection elsewhere. So Harida said to Nittai, There is this difficulty. Jagai and Madai may commit an assault upon us. However, Nittai replied, But you are used to it. This was said in reference to the public flogging which Haridas, due to his religious beliefs, had many times received before and Haridas was, of course, silenced. The fact was, they were, in their heart of hearts, almost courting an outrage upon themselves. They then both proceeded to the brothers, the greatest sinners then existing. Nittai stood before the brothers, Haridas behind him. May Sri Krishna bless you, said Nittai, addressing them. Dear brothers, Worship Sri Krishna, serve him, for he is the best of lords. Now Jagai and Madai had their religion too, which was based upon one of the tantras. This tantra advocated the eating of meat and drinking of liquor. Those who followed this religion called themselves viras or heroes. 
They held their orgies at midnight and had dealings with dark spirits. It is believed that this tantric religion was invented with a view to brutalize the Hindus so as to enable them to meet the Muslim invaders of the country. It is said that the spiritual Hindus found it impossible to cope with the brutalized Afghans and Mughals who came from the West. What was required was to create a body of men equally brutal who should be able to meet them. And this tantricism was invented for the purpose. Men were induced to join it by the mysteries which surrounded all the ceremonies and the liberty that it permitted its votaries in the matter of eating, drinking, and other illegitimate pleasures. They were further promised gifts from spirits and gods. Those who ranged themselves under this banner naturally became more brutal, if not stronger, than the other Hindus who lived sparingly and on strictly sober principles. The development of their brutal instincts was, of course, founded upon the ruins of their spiritual nature. Jagai and Madai were surely, therefore, not predisposed to accept Sri Krishna, the god of love. Besides, they entertained a particular hatred for the Vaishnavas. Indeed, tantrics, generally speaking, had a very low opinion of Vaishnavism, which, they thought, was calculated to make men effeminate. When, therefore, Nittai recommended the brothers to accept Sri Krishna, they lost their temper, called him and Haridas cheaters, ordered them off, and forbade the saints to trouble them. The order to retire was not obeyed with the customary eagerness, which enraged the brothers who thereupon expelled their visitors from their presence by force. Thus Nittai and Haridas had to endure humiliation and insult. Love of Nittai for his fellow beings knew no bounds, and for those who were fallen he felt a most profound pity. His notion was that Jagai and Madai, in spite of their worldly prosperity, were the most miserable of men. With Nittai the afterworld and the miseries of sinners there were stern realities. He knew that the brothers would suffer terribly hereafter. The condition of the two brothers, therefore, called for his earnest consideration but he was further helped in forming the deep resolution of converting the brothers by motives of policy, namely, in order that these two men, so well known in the country and so dreaded by the people, might bear witness to the reality of the avatar of Sri Goranga. Nittai said to Haridas, Dear brother, do oblige me by a service. Speak to the Lord about the brothers. Tell him that they demand his first consideration. I know the Lord has great regard for you and that he will listen to your request. If you speak a word on behalf of the brothers, the Lord may be moved to take pity upon them and save them. Nittai, of course, had no doubt as to the power of the Lord to save them. He knew that if the Lord only agreed to save them, they would be saved. Haridas smiled and said, I now see all. You, who can purify the universe by your slightest desire, want their salvation. And this means that they are already saved. They both returned home and said nothing to the Lord just then. 
They were not men to run to the Lord for assistance without first trying what they themselves could do. Haridas said to Nittai, To proclaim Sri Krishna in this manner is what was never done before. We must, however, obey the Lord. But what business had you to approach those drunkards? Nittai replied, Because our Lord is playful and unconventional, and we should be like him. And then, dear Haridas, fancy the condition of these wretches. What will become of them? As Nittai said this, his eyes were filled with tears. It, however, so happened that the two brothers, just at this time, pitched their tents in that quarter of the town where the Lord lived. The result was that the people became alarmed and combined for their protection. They walked outside, but only in large parties, and gave up going out at all after nightfall. The kirtan of the Lord was not stopped, however, and one night the sound of the music attracted the brothers there. It was early in the morning when the door was opened, and the bhaktas issued from the courtyard of Srivas to proceed to the Ganges for the purpose of bathing, when lo, who should be there but Jagai and Madai? The music had attracted them, and not finding an entry, they had been obliged to be satisfied with what could be heard of the kirtan from outside. Heaven only knows why they did not use force for the purpose of forcing an entry. What they really did was to pass the whole night outside the door, alternately dancing to the music within and consuming liquor. As the bhaktas issued from the meeting, they saw before them the specters of the two brothers. Immediately they surrounded the Lord for the purpose of protecting his person. The brothers were then in a happy mood, however. They accosted the Lord and wanted to know what his troops sang, having taken the kirtan party to be only an opera company, organized for the purpose of amusement and profit. The Lord made no reply. On the contrary, he was in a great hurry to escape from the presence of the brothers. Nittai's object was thus frustrated. His idea had been to bring the brothers face to face with the Lord. Accidentally, this had been brought about, but the meeting had produced no result. So he again induced Haridas to visit the brothers with him and to proclaim the worship of Sri Krishna to them. Thus they again proceeded to the brothers and delivered the message. Love Krishna. Worship Krishna. Serve Krishna. Life is short and the object of life is the attainment of the lotus feet of God. The brothers were then sufficiently sober to understand the situation. They saw the same Vaishnavas had again come to them to advocate doctrines which they hated. They had once excused these meddlesome mendicants. They would do so no longer. So they said, Cheaters, have you come again? Today we will teach you a lesson. So they rose to strike Nittai and Haridas. Seeing how their pious advances were received, the two bhaktas retreated, 
hoping in this manner to avoid being pursued or assaulted. But they were mistaken. The two brothers actually pursued them with uplifted fists. There was then no help but to escape by running away. Nittai was a good runner, but not Haridas. So the former had to drag along the latter. The spectacle was certainly not edifying. Two of the greatest bhaktas of the Lord flying before the two infuriated robbers and the nimbler one dragging the other along with him. Of course, there were many men in the street, some of them opponents of the bhaktas, and to these the incident seemed an excellent opportunity for taking revenge. They exclaimed, Well done! The cheaters are well served! And so forth. As for the two brothers, they being yet partially under the influence of liquor, had to give up the pursuit. Ever since the two brothers had pitched their tents in the quarter of the city where the Lord lived, the bhaktas who resided near him were constantly under the apprehension of being molested by them. This they thought rather provoking, since the Lord Almighty was in their midst, yet they took no steps to inform the Lord of the matter. They felt that Lord Garanga would somehow or other protect them. But the outrage upon Nittai, who was considered the elder brother of the Lord, and Haridas, one of his foremost bhaktas, ought not, it was thought, to be kept a secret from the Lord. So the leading bhaktas besieged the Lord the same afternoon. The Lord could see that his friends had something to say, so he inquired what it was. They then gave vent to their feelings, how Jagai and Madai had accumulated wagon loads of sin upon their heads, how they had committed murders, robbed people, outraged the weak, etc. The description of the character of the brothers did not, however, create any feeling of indignation in the mind of the Lord. He was, on the contrary, overpowered by profound pity, of which his sorrowful face gave ample evidence. He remarked, Alas, alas, deluded fools! They do not know that they will have to render an account of themselves. Another bhakta sought to move the Lord on personal grounds. He explained how they had pitched their tents in their midst, and that their presence had created a reign of terror, and then appealed to the Lord, if he had any pity for the fallen, to take the case of the brothers first into his consideration. Here Nittai broke in, interrupting the previous speaker. As for me, I shall never more move about to proclaim Sri Krishna. And why should we? People call us thieves, cheats, and fools. Jagai and Madai would have murdered us had we not escaped through your mercy. You reveal yourself to us in a closed room. But what are you doing for the outside world? First save the greatest sitters in the world. Then you can take our case into consideration. The Lord smiled and said, Lucky are the two brothers since you, the servants of Lord Krishna, wish them well. Lord Krishna will certainly fulfill your desire, so worthy of yourselves. When the Lord said this, the bhaktas immediately raised the joyous shout of Hari, Hari, for they knew from what fell from his lips that the two brothers were saved. The Lord continued, their sins are great, and it is Harinam, the name of the Lord, that alone can remove them. Let us save them by giving them Harinam, and let the world see the power which the name of Lord Krishna possesses. Do one thing, 
Send for all the bhaktas and let us go in procession to the two brothers, performing kirtan or congregational chanting, and then breathe the name of Lord Krishna into their ears. No sooner had the Lord uttered this command than the bhaktas ran to fetch their brother bhaktas, who were living near but had not come. Large numbers obeyed the summons and then all prepared themselves for the kirtan. This was the first time that the citizens were to witness a kirtan. They had heard of it, and some of them had called it only a masquerade of drunkenness. Though many of them had tried to see it, none had succeeded in the attempt, for none except those who had deserved the blessing had ever been able to gain admittance to the place where it was held. When the Lord proposed that they should go to the tent of Jagai and Madai, doing kirtan all the way, and then give Harinam to the brothers, he thereby very severely tested the fidelity of his bhaktas. For to appear in the streets of the sedate city of Nadia, with uplifted arms, dancing and chanting the name of Krishna, was to court ridicule, jeers, and the pelting of stones. The bhaktas braved it without a condition, but they braved more. They risked immediate slaughter by visiting Jagai and Madai in their haunts. It must be borne in mind that in those days of anarchy, after the Muslims had come and disturbed the established government, leaders with a strong band of mercenaries could do whatever they liked. If the brothers had actually carried out the threats of exterminating the Vaishnavas, they might have done it with impunity. There was none to prevent them, for although there was a Kazi or governor, he had only nominal control over the town. But the faith of the bhaktas in the Lord was firm, and they felt that under his protection they had nothing whatever to fear. From this we may observe the absolute hold that the Lord had obtained over the devotees. The bhaktas opened the door and appeared in the streets. Crowds collected to witness, for it seemed to them to be a ludicrous sight of respectable men, including many savants, dancing with musical anklets on their legs. Those who had come to laugh, however, were at once sobered by the spectacle. For the bhaktas who were singing and dancing were in terrible earnest. They were not dancing to praise God, but the praise of the good Lord brought so much pleasure to their hearts that they could not help dancing. Their faces beamed with celestial happiness, which everyone could see. There was piety in all that they did, in their voice broken by emotion, in their soft and tearful eyes, in their happy faces and suppliant postures. As for the Lord, he was in the middle surrounded by hundreds of bhaktas, he looked like a figure of gold, an incarnation of beauty and ecstasy. Every one of his limbs showed the joy that was at work within his heart. Nittai was at the head of the party. He was taking no part in the kirtan. He was conducting the expedition to the enemy's camp and was therefore leading the way. He had set his heart upon the salvation of the two brothers but he himself had failed to accomplish his desire. However, now that he had been able to persuade the Lord to take up the task himself, he was in ecstasy. 
His mind was so occupied with the thought of the brothers that he had no opportunity of directing it to the lotus feet of Krishna, which the members of a kirtan party are required to do. The kirtan, of course, with its songs, the playing of the drums and the cymbals, and the loud shouts of Hari, Hari, was making a good deal of noise. When the party, therefore, neared the tent of the brothers, their slumber was disturbed. They had spent the night, as usual, in drunken orgies, and they were recruiting their jaded energies by a few hours' slumber in the afternoon. Being disturbed from their sleep, they directed their attendants to stop the noise, whereupon they again fell asleep. The attendants ran out to stop the kirtan. They delivered the message and ordered the bhaktas to cease, but the latter were not in a state of mind to listen to such a command, for a celestial joy filled their hearts, and the Lord himself was with them. So the message only served to increase their zeal. The attendants returned discomfited and filled with resentment and told their masters how they had been insulted. They said, It is Nimai Pandit and a large body of men under his leadership, all singing Vaishnava songs, playing on musical instruments and dancing like madmen who are making all the noise. And when we delivered your message and asked them to desist so as to not disturb your rest, instead of obeying, they redoubled their noise. Then Madai, the stronger brother, asked, They are Vaishnavas, are they not? <laughs> well, today we shall exterminate the pests. Thus saying, the two brothers rose in a state of fury. They had never entertained any love for the Vaishnavas. They had, moreover, been insulted by the two whom they addressed as cheaters, Nittai and Haridas, who were sent to convert them. And the present kirtan was an additional cause of anger. Their slumber had been disturbed, and they could not forgive this. Besides, their authority had been set at naught, and this last circumstance did not certainly serve to mollify their temper. What could be a greater offense to tyrants than to disobedience to their authority? The spirit of murder was in them, and they ran towards the Kirtan party to satisfy their thirst for blood. They had been in a sleeping state of semi-nudity, and they were in such a hurry to revenge themselves on the disturbers that they had no time to put on their dress before proceeding to the attack. What they did was, they wrapped their dhotis round their loins as they advanced, so as not to lose time. The idea of exterminating the Vaishnavas delighted them fully. However, they committed one blunder in their hurry. Namely, they forgot to take any weapon with them, though their followers were fully armed. The man at the head of the Kirtan party, as before stated, was Nittai. So Nittai and the brothers met face to face. Nittai saw that the brothers were in a state of fury and that the spirit of murder was in them. He saw that the two brothers before him were under the influence of an uncontrollable homicidal passion. They stood before him as fiends in human shape, and Nittai was not prepared for this. He had expected that the two brothers would be moved by the celestial music and fall at the feet of the Lord, and this idea had put him in the happiest possible mood. 
The spectacle of the two brothers therefore shocked him. He was filled with profound pity, especially because the two fellow beings before him, God's creatures, blinded by animal instinct and what is called worldly prosperity, were quite unconscious of their own miserable state and the awful sufferings that awaited them in the afterlife. Nittai tenderly gazed at them, while sentiments of pity for the assailants passed rapidly through his mind, and he sought to address them. The brothers saw Nittai before them, and the sight inflamed still more, if possible, their passions. They saw before them the same ascetic who had twice insulted them by assuming a tone of moral superiority and censuring them for their conduct. They took a moment to think what sort of punishment they should inflict upon him, whom they considered an impertinent fool. That was Nittai's opportunity. He burst into tears and in broken accents addressed them thus. We come to you as loving friends. We come not to hurt you and to be hurt in return. We have to tell you that Lord Krishna is a loving master and that our first duty is to worship his lotus feet. Good brothers, do not be offended. Why should you hurt me when I am only a poor devotee? Now, from the point of view of the brothers, they were the injured party. If they drank liquor or committed murder, that was nothing to Nittai or to the Vaishnavas. What right had the Vaishnavas to pose as superior beings and offer them moral assistance which they had not asked for? And had not they shown on more occasions than one and in an unmistakable manner that they did not want the good services of the Vaishnavas? And what did this show of force mean? Hundreds of men coming to their house with loud shouts of Hari Bol or chant the Lord's name unless to proclaim that they were rascals. Would anybody tolerate being besieged in his own house for such a purpose? The address of Nittai acted like a spark applied to a heap of dry gunpowder. Madai the stronger did not allow Nittai to finish his sermon. He muttered some curses, and finding the broken neck of an earthen jaw lying on the ground near him, took it up and flung it with great violence and unerring precision at Nittai. It struck the forehead of Nittai with great force. The blow partially stunned Nittai, and blood spurted from the wound. Nittai, however, immediately recovered his senses, and seeing that the flow of blood was blinding him, he pressed the wound with both hands to stop it. Madai saw the blood, but was not appeased. There was another piece of the same jar there, and he picked it up for another assault. But this time his arm was arrested, and he was prevented from throwing the missile by Jagai. Jagai was less strong and more susceptible than Madai. The earnest countenance, the tearful eyes, and the passionate appeal of Nittai had, in spite of himself, touched Jagai. And when Madai attempted another assault, Jagai caught hold of his arm with the remark, I do not see any merit or glory in killing a stranger and devotee. Neither do I think that your action will bring you any blessing or advantage. (laughs) 
News in the meantime was conveyed to the Lord, who was behind with the Kirtan party, that Jagai and Matai were killing Nittai. The Lord was in the middle of his bhaktas, while Nittai had gone ahead. So the Lord and those who surrounded him had no knowledge of the serious incident that had just occurred ahead of them. The Lord was rudely disturbed in the midst of his lovely dance by the message that they were killing Nittai. They are killing my Nittai, exclaimed the Lord, and he hastened forward. A passage was opened for him by the bhaktas, and the Lord approached Nittai. He saw that the face of Nittai was besmeared with blood, and that he was pressing the wound in his forehead with both his hands to prevent the blood from flowing. He was nevertheless dancing in the joy of his heart and repeating the name of Lord Goranga. Nittai had come to realize that Matai was saved, for it would be impossible for the Lord to ignore such an outrage as had been committed by Matai. To take note of the outrage would be to save the brothers, for in this incarnation the Lord had forsworn punishment. He could only punish by giving salvation. He had also another cause of joy. With lightning rapidity he came to feel that the wound on his forehead meant not only the salvation of the brothers, but good to all humanity. For if the brothers were converted, would not the whole world be converted by that miracle? And therefore he danced in the height of his joy. The first thing the Lord did was to take his own shawl and wrap it round the forehead of Nittai, with a view to stop the blood. This done, he had time to look at the brothers and their party. As a matter of fact, the touch of the Lord stopped the flow of blood, and there was thus no further necessity to attend to Nittai. He saw that Madai, who was being held fast by his brother, was yet violently foaming at the mouth and trying to extricate himself to attack the Kirtan party, and also that the fiendish followers of the brothers stood behind them with deadly weapons in their hands, awaiting orders. As for Jagai, he had no doubt done a good service in restraining Madai, but otherwise he remained as great a monster as he was before. He had, however, his wits about him, and seeing that hundreds of the leading men of the town were then assembled around the bhaktas, many of whom were their acquaintances, and some even their relations, he was no longer in favor of the actual extermination of the Vaishnavas. Although Madai was for the extermination of the Vaishnavas, and Jagai was not for such a terrible punishment, yet the latter was angry and defiant, and not in the least disposed to allow the meddlesome Vaishnavas to go altogether scot-free. The Lord, after taking care of Nittai, stood surrounded by hundreds of bhaktas face to face with the brothers, who on their side were supported by hundreds of robbers and murderers. The Lord addressed the brothers, and everyone was hushed into silence. He said, Are you not ashamed of the cowardly act of committing an assault upon an unarmed man, a stranger and a devotee, sworn never to hold a lethal weapon? 
how could you bring yourself to hurt him? Had he attacked you? Had he not at least meant to serve you? The brothers, irresistible in strength, never accustomed to be thwarted, much less reproved, always under the influence of passion, might have been expected to at least interrupt the Lord. They would, one would think, stop or even assault the Lord. But they did not. They allowed him to proceed as passively as if they were prisoners before a judge. And why? It was because they felt themselves paralyzed. The Lord continued, You are accumulating sin incessantly upon your heads, and you seem not to be growing tired of it. It never occurred to you that a day of reckoning would come eventually, when you would be made, in spite of your brute strength, to give a full account of yourself. That day, or rather that moment, is come. You began in sin, and your assault upon Nityananda, the humble slave of the Lord, and the disinterested friend of the poor and fallen, is a fitting end. Now, Jagai and Madai, receive your due punishment. The brothers stood transfixed to the spot. They found themselves standing with folded hands in token of submission and trembling from head to foot with fear. They found that they had lost not only all power of moving their limbs, but even of speech, and that the being who was standing before them was indescribably terrible and was their unyielding judge. The Lord, after delivering his judgment, loudly summoned his mystical weapon, the chakra, a whirling disk of fire which materialized instantly. It was then that the terrible being before the brothers revealed himself to them as the great judge. They and all those who witnessed the fire that surrounded the brothers came to feel that the last moment of the latter had arrived. Most men present felt satisfied, for the brothers were deservedly hated by them. Nittai, however, did not like this unexpected turn of events. He had gone there for the preservation and not for their destruction. When he was struck, he danced with delight. It was because he felt that by that incident he had acquired a claim in regard to the souls of the two brothers. If the Lord meant punishment to the brothers, he would plainly tell the Lord that they had offended him, Nittai, that the Lord had no business to interfere in the matter, and that Nittai claimed the two souls by the severe wound on his forehead. But now the Lord, assuming his own inherent independence, was going to take the matter into his own hands. This, thought Nittai, he should try to prevent. So he loudly cried, Mercy! and fell at the feet of the Lord. Nittai knew that if he himself had any slight desire for the salvation of the brothers, the Lord had a greater desire to accomplish that end. For was he not all mercy, that is to say, only mercy? Of course, he had to assume the appearance of severity to maintain the superiority of righteousness over sin. But Nittai knew full well that, in his heart of hearts, he was more tender than he himself or anybody else in the universe. So he thought, if he but once prayed to the Lord for the souls of the brothers, the Lord would not only grant the request, but also be obliged to him for having preferred it. 
He was therefore exceedingly surprised to find the unforgiving attitude of the Lord. For though Nittai, whom the Lord called his elder brother, knelt before him and prayed for mercy, he yet remained utterly unmoved. Nittai was disconcerted. He remembered that Madai had drawn blood from his forehead and that the Lord had a just cause of offense against the man. He therefore again addressed the Lord in these terms. My Lord, I see it is the slight wound on my forehead which makes you unrelenting, but I assure you, it may all be little more than the result of accident. Madai probably never meant to hurt me, but struck at me blindly under the influence of a sudden impulse, and then the wound is very slight, and believe me, my Lord, I did not feel it in the least. So please have mercy, my good Lord. But the Lord remained as immovable and terrible as ever. His face, which usually beamed with love and mercy, did not show the least sign of being affected by the passionate appeals of Nittai. Nittai then changed his tactics. He said, My Lord, assuming that they deserve punishment, please do not forget your promise. Did you not promise that in this incarnation you would not wield any weapon of destruction and that you would save the wicked by appealing to their better nature, by kindness, by your inexhaustible mercy, and by washing away their sins with your tears of sympathy? You have nothing to do with your fire disk in this incarnation. Do not forget that you have come to soften the hearts of the wicked, and if you now kill them with your fire disk, whom will you save then? The Lord still remained unmoved. There was not a sound in the vast crowd while Nittai was speaking. Then Nittai thought, What is the matter with the Lord? The misery of others normally throws him into a convulsion of grief. It is no doubt that the wound on my forehead has affected him. Nittai again changed his tactics and said, My Lord, you know best what to do under the circumstances, but yet you cannot kill both, for... Jagai, he saved my life. Immediately the Lord fastened his, fastened his looks upon Nittai and asked, Explain, what do you mean, Jagai saved your life? Now as we stated before, when the assault was committed, the Lord was in the midst of his bhaktas, far in the rear. Thus he had witnessed nothing. Nittai now told him, how, when Madai sought to assault him a second time, Jagai not only held him fast, but also rebuked him for his cowardly conduct. Immediately an approving smile lighted up the divine face of the Lord. He looked again all mercy, all good, from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, and he said, So, Jagai saved your life? And then, looking at Jagai, he further said, Jagai... You saved the life of my Nittai. Therefore you have conferred an infinite obligation upon me. You deserve a reward from me. So here it is. Let me embrace you. Saying this, the Lord, the incarnation of purity, held the loathsome moral leper in his bosom and gave him a warm embrace. And what was the result? Jagai fell down on his back, as if struck by lightning, in a state of complete trance. His fixed and staring eyes, 
his motionless limbs, indicated that life had left him. When Jagai fell down in a trance, the incident was followed by a joyous shout, not only from the bhaktas, but also from others, including their opponents, who had, unperceived by them, caught the contagion of the moment. Madai was in a state of utter despair. Indeed, he had lost all hope, all volition, even all power of speech. The mercy shown to his brother, however, proved a ray of hope which entered his heart and brought back to him his life, which had almost deserted him. The hope not only gave him life, but also produced a revolution in his mind. Previously, he had felt that he was the greatest offender in the world, that he was a doomed man, and that it would be folly on his part to allow any ray of hope to enter his heart. But the mercy shown to Jagai, without any effort on his part, made him feel in spite of himself that the offenses were not as great as he had thought them to be. With these thoughts, he fell at the feet of the Lord, exclaiming, Mercy! O Lord, mercy! Immediately, the Lord retreated a step, he said, Madai, your case is not so simple as you think. Madai was disconcerted, yet he did not lose all hope. Perhaps he thought the Lord was playing a part, so he said, My Lord, we are all your children. For he had then not the least doubt that the being before him was the Lord of the universe. And he continued, I am also one of your children. Thus you cannot cast me away. The Lord replied, you, a creature of God? Did you ever recognize it? Why then did you maltreat those who were your brothers? You, the Lord of all, you before whom men trembled with folded hands, to pose before me as a worshiper and a beggar in the presence of this crowd of people? You, the best-dressed man in the town, to roll with your fine clothes on in the dust, to weep as helplessly as those whom you often made to weep before you, are you not ashamed of yourself? Blinded by material prosperity, you crushed out all the fine sentiments given to you by a kind and merciful God that you might be a help and comfort to your fellow man. But no, you trampled the weak, the poor, the innocent, the good, and now you claim your right as the child of the same Father who created all. Madai, have you no shame left? Madai was again seized with utter despair. He muttered something to the effect that the Lord was impartial, that as his brother, his partner in guilt, had been excused and accepted, he expected the same treatment from the Father of all. The Lord again replied, Madai, when the Bhaktas came to give you the name of Hari, they of course thereby condoned your past misdeeds. Sripad Nityananda came to bless you and your brother, your past misdeeds then would not have been taken into account, and you would have been accepted as Jagai has been. But you have given fresh offense. You have drawn blood, not only from a bhakta who is innocent, but from one who was your well-wisher. No, Madai, you, you can expect no mercy from me. 
Madai was silenced, and he thought profoundly for a second. However, he could not remain quiet, so he again addressed the Lord, saying, I see it is all over with me, yet I don't know why all hope does not yet desert me. Am I then to be abandoned thus forever and evermore? My Lord, I don't ask forgiveness of you, nor am I afraid of punishment. Let it come and I shall welcome it. Only tell me, is there any way, any penance by which I can at any future period attain to your lotus feet? Only tell me the way, if there be any, and then, then you may cast me off. When Madai said this, the countenance of the Lord assumed its usual loveliness. The severity of his tone disappeared, and he addressed Madai in the sweetest of voices, saying, Well, if you come to that, I think I can help you. You offended Tripad Nityananda. If you can, by any means, secure his forgiveness, I think for his sake, your case might be taken into favorable consideration. You are absolutely at the disposal of Nityananda, the friend of the fallen. No one else, not even I, can help you. And Madai cried out, Mercy! Mercy! and fell at the feet of Nityananda. Simple Nitai was overjoyed and was going to show it when the Lord caught hold of his hand and said, Don't permit that unfortunate creature by too ready forgiveness to think lightly of his misdeeds. Let me, therefore, implore your forgiveness, Nittai, on behalf of this miserable being. Dear Nittai, forgive him for my sake, and show to the world the difference between a servant of the Lord and a sinner. Let Madai know that his offenses are so great that even I, I cannot excuse them, and that I have to implore you for his forgiveness. Nittai, interrupted by the Lord, heard him with due submission. He then, addressing the Lord, said, You hold the strings and make us do your wishes, as a magician does with his puppets. It is you who felt pity for your fallen child, Madai, and it is you who intend to save him through me. Always kind to your bhaktas, you are always ready to give them prominence. One of your amiable tactics is to transfer all your credit to your servants. Your object, kind Lord, is to show your regard for your servants, and therefore you place Madai at my disposal. Let thy will be done. Let me be the means of his salvation. You say that for his salvation, it is necessary that I should forgive him. I do forgive him from the bottom of my heart. Nay, I must tell you what I feel. Let all the dwellers in heaven and earth bear me witness. I not only forgive Madai unconditionally, but also make over to him any merit that I may have earned by any good act of mine during the whole course of my existence. The announcement, when its significance was realized, was received with loud and repeated shouts of Hari Bol, Nittai continued, Now, my dear Madai, 
come, come to my bosom, and let the world see that there is no longer any difference between us. And so saying, Nittai caught hold of the arms of the great city chieftain, drew him towards himself, and gave him a warm embrace. Matai, like his brother, fell down in a trance beside him. So they lay side by side, their eyes fixed and foam coming from between their lips. The pressure of the crowd was very great. Everyone wanted to come and see the terrible brothers now rolling in the dust. The Lord, whose work had been done, therefore hastily withdrew his bhaktas, leaving the brothers where they were, in a state of trance, in the public streets. The Lord came home with his bhaktas and they all sat in the courtyard to take rest after their exertions. The season was the hottest and the time the afternoon. The exertion and the excitement that they had gone through had made them perspire. They were yet in a state of bewilderment on account of the experience they had just gone through. The sun had just set and they were preparing to go for a plunge in the river when they heard loud calls at the door. It was Jagai and Madai. They had now come to be saved. After being let in, they came before the Lord and with a shriek crying out for mercy again fell down senseless. The Lord was still in his divine state. Indeed, he had ceased to be man the moment he had opened the doors and proceeded toward Madai. Addressing Nittai, the Lord said, Nittai, take the two penitents to the Ganges and there breathe the holy name of Krishna into their ears. You wanted them for me, but you alone have claims upon them, so I make them over to you. So here was another incident which brought the Lord and the Bhaktas in contact with the outside world. The door was again opened, and the apparently dead bodies of the brothers were carried to the Ganges with the sounds of drum, cymbal, and the chanting of Hari Bol. This time there were no jeers from the public, and the procession passed through the crowds, who followed it with great reverence and wonder. When they had all entered the Ganges, the brothers recovered. In the river, as was usual with the bhaktas, they became very frolicsome. After having played for some time, pelting each other with handfuls of water, in the midst of frequent and loud shouts of Hari Bol, the bhaktas were hushed into silence by a gesture from the Lord. A large crowd had gathered on the bank. The evening was clear, for the moon had risen, and they stood all expectant to see how the matter would end. The Lord said in a loud voice to Nittai, I make over these two penitents to you, Nittai. Purify them by giving them the name of Krishna and show to the world that his name is more potent than any accumulation of sin.
they all stood waist-deep in the water, surrounding the Lord, who was in the middle. Nittai on his left, and the two brothers with folded hands before him. The Lord in solemn language then addressed the brothers, Jagannath and Madhav, you have been accumulating sins since your birth. Now, deliver them to me with copper, tulsi, and Ganges water, and thereby relieve yourself of your burden and become pure. When the Hindus execute any deed of gift, it is registered with Ganges water, tulsi leaves, and copper. Registered in that way, it becomes sacredly sealed and binding upon both parties forever and evermore. As for the brothers, when they realized the situation, they soon formed their resolutions. They were then fully aware of their wretched condition. The way out of their wretchedness was thus made clear for them by the Lord. But they refused to avail themselves of it. They declared, No, let us suffer for our misdeeds. My Lord, please don't issue mandates which can never be obeyed. This reply of the brothers was received with approbation by all and expressed by loud shouts of Haribo. But the Lord remained unmoved. He again demanded of the brothers in a firmer tone to deliver all their sins to him. Under the firmest belief that they were addressing the deity himself, the brothers felt that their duty was to obey, but they still could not make up their minds to agree to the proposal. So they again expressed their refusal, saying, My Lord, please excuse us. People offer you the choicest of flowers. If we now obey you, our fellow creatures will never forgive us wretches for offering you our sins. The Lord was, however, inflexible. He again made the demand in the same language. Then Nittai intervened, and he advised the brothers to submit, saying, You must not forget that nothing can soil fire, but fire purifies everything. As a man, you cannot help apprehending that the load of your sins will prove a burden to the Lord. But if you remember who is demanding your load, that will relieve you of your apprehension. Everybody says that if God is merciful, he is also the avenger of sin. Let it be proved that the Lord is also the Savior. It seems the Lord means to prove this through you. Don't hesitate any longer, but do the Lord's bidding. That is the safest and best thing for us poor creatures to do. The brothers having submitted stood before the Lord oppressed by diverse feelings. Now the deed of transfer was to be effected according to the Hindu method. The giver must declare while in contact with the sacred water, copper, and tulsi leaves that he makes a gift of such a thing to such a person and to the son and grandson of such a person. Then the receiver has in the same solemn manner to declare, I accept. No deed of gift is complete unless both the giver and the receiver express their perfect agreement. So the Lord extended his joined hands for the purpose of receiving the gift, and the brothers uttered the formula as is written in the sacred laws. They said, and everybody heard the words distinctly, 
that they were handing over all the sins they had committed themselves during the period of their existence to the Lord. And the Lord, in the same distinct manner, under the seal of the sacred things enumerated above, signified his acceptance. He said, I accept your gift. Everyone present looked at the Lord with the profoundest pity, admiration, and love. Here a miracle occurred. No sooner had the Lord said, I accept, than his complexion changed from golden to dark. Since it was night, nobody except those who were near could perceive it. This change of color in the Lord showed that the sins of the brothers had entered his body. Nittai breathed the name of Hadi or God in the ears of the brothers. From that moment, they were accepted by the Lord. They then all returned to the house of the Lord, where a kirtan or group chanting was immediately commenced. There Nittai danced with the two brothers, and danced like one who had gone mad in his joy. He sometimes danced on one leg, sometimes his dances were big jumps, and sometimes clean somersaults. Anyhow, if the dance was not elegant, it served its purpose. When the brothers took to dancing, it created the greatest possible wonder and it is expressed by the following song of the period describing the feelings of those present. What a miracle! See, Madai dances. Jagai may dance, but see, it is also Madai who dances. When Madai danced, the Baptists thought it a very great miracle. So they declared amongst themselves, Yes, Jagai has proved himself to be the possessor of some redeemable qualities, and so we can understand his being able to dance. But how is it that Madai should be able to dance under the influence of love and devotion? Madai, who only a few hours before was the greatest sinner on earth. As for the brothers, it was, however, not actually love and devotion that led them to dance, but hope. They had lost hope, and finding one ray of it, they could not help expressing it by a dance. For their dance ceased in a short time, and they began to weep. Madai refused to go home and remained at Shribas's house. He had no longer any desire but that of deserving the forgiveness of the Lord. He renounced food and sleep. Nittai, Shribas, and others tried to soothe him. They told him that he had no longer any sin, that the Lord had made him pure, had taken all his sins on his own shoulders. But this did not bring him any consolation. The idea that the Lord had taken all his sins on his shoulders gave Madai a shudder. Indeed, his greatest sorrow was that the Lord had relieved him of the punishment justly due him. Madai was slowly starving himself, 
and Nittai failed to afford him consolation. And so at last he appealed to the Lord. My Lord, he said, we can scarcely save Madai, for he has given up food and hope. The Lord was moved even to tears. He hastened to Madai, whom he saw weeping with a plate of rice before him, untouched. The Lord sat before Madai and said, Dear Madai, don't kill yourself. Please eat. Madai opened his eyes and saw the Lord before him. The spectacle certainly gratified him, but it also reminded him of his sorrow, which he was trying to forget. He saluted the Lord with great humility and tried to receive him cheerfully. The Lord said, Madai, I must say this is a little selfish on your part. You have made Nityananda miserable. You have made others miserable too. What ails you? Are not your sins all forgiven? When the Lord spoke of the forgiveness of his sins, Madai shuddered. The Lord continued, I am before you, ready to grant whatever you would like. But tell me, how can I further help you? Madai said, My Lord, let me explain the cause of my sorrow. I have received the highest blessing possible to man. I know further that I am burdened no longer with sin, but yet I cannot restrain my tears or put a stop to the sorrows which, like the waves of the Ganges, come one after another in succession and overwhelm my heart. The cause of my sorrow is your kindness. What am I that you should think of me? You are purity and I am dirt. Forgetting that, you have been treating me as if I were a pet child of yours. If I had been punished for my sins, I think I would be less miserable than I am. I now see that it is a wise arrangement which visits sin with punishment. My Lord, the more you are showering your mercies upon me, the more miserable I am becoming. In the presence of the Lord, Madai was somewhat soothed, and he wiped his tears and took his meal. He had to speak with restraint before the Lord, but he was more free with Nittai, his spiritual guru. For Nittai was the only being in the world then with whom he thought he had any relationship, since he had forsworn society, family, and friends. To Nittai he opened his heart and said, The acceptance of myself and of my sins by the Lord has given life to my heart. Previously it was dead or under the absolute control of fierce passions. But the Lord's blessing has awakened me, as it were, from a stupor, and my past activities now stand to me revealed. And what do I see? There is nothing to flatter me, to please me, or to console me. It is one continuous record of crimes and cruelties, committed and inflicted for selfish purposes. I cannot remember all the crimes I committed, or all the parties I have injured, more especially because 
I was almost always under the influence of liquor. But some of my acts I remember vividly, and others faintly. And they are now having their revenge upon me. Every act of mine has now, as it were, taken shape to inflict punishment upon my most vital parts. In my waking state, I see before me pictures of outraged women, of orphaned children, and men in agony, all reduced to that condition by me. In my dreams, things long forgotten come to my mind and torment me. Dear Guru, it seems to me that when the Lord accepted me, he simply meant by this that he would give me the power of weeping. Yes, that is his greatest blessing. This weeping relieves me somewhat. Indeed, if not for this weeping, I should have been burnt to ashes by the fire awakened in my heart by the Lord's blessings upon me. I hear the shrieks of my fellow beings I have injured and see the agonizing faces of those I have subjected to torture. These specters torment me day and night. It strikes me that there is one way by which I can relieve myself of the torments which have beset me. And it is this. If I now could only get hold of the men I have injured, and obtain forgiveness from them, I think I could bring some solace to my soul. But where are they, and who are they? I have thought of a plan. I shall post myself at the bathing guts, where I shall meet all the men, women, and children of the town. There, there, let me ask forgiveness of all, whomsoever I come across. What do you say to this plan, my revered guru? Nittai agreed to the proposal, and Madai then acted on his resolution. After resigning himself to God, he came out of the house of Srivas, where he was spending his days and nights in privacy. He came out the most miserable man in the world, utterly unconscious of the crowd, that his presence had collected round him. Men who hated him, men whom he had injured, wanted to have their revenge upon him. But they did not venture on any familiarity, for when a tiger has been killed, people do not dare approach the spot at once. They had seen the tiger of the city of Nadia in the prime of his power, but they had not seen the process by which he had become a changed man, and they dared not trust him. They followed him, therefore, from a respectful distance. Then a man flung a stone at him, and it struck him. The reveries of Madai were broken, and he realized the situation at once. At other times, if anyone had ventured to assault him, that man would have been slain or otherwise punished. But now Madai, though struck, did not feel his equanimity disturbed in the least, and he smiled a smile of satisfaction. He was satisfied with himself, because the insult offered to him had not ruffled his temper. 
he was satisfied because he thought that he was now receiving a portion of that punishment which was due him. Indeed, if the man who had cast the stone could only have had a glimpse of the purified face of Madai with the deep anguish that was imprinted on it, he would never have flung it. Madai sat on the bank while a crowd stood around him. He gazed at the crowd, and the crowd gazed at him. Madai tried to suppress his tears because he wanted to address those who were before him. He rose and with folded hands said, Behold me, Madai, the Raja of Nadia. In my pride of power I trampled everything sacred underfoot. Will you now confer a priceless obligation on me by trampling me underfoot? The crowd was petrified with surprise. Their hatred of the man evaporated in a moment. On the other hand, they felt a profound sympathy for him. Then a bather approached, and Madai fell at his feet, saying, Kind sir, I do not know whether I have ever injured you or not. I am the greatest sinner in the world, yet the Lord has promised to accept me on one condition. It is that you, his creatures, will forgive me. If you cannot, at least put your foot on my head. The man took time to understand the situation. At first he could not, in Madai, recognize the terrible city chieftain of Nadia. He then had to realize the purport of the address, which seemed so strange in his mouth. He understood the terms of the address, but yet he hesitated, thinking, Is Madai acting a part? Is he mocking me? Is he really Madai at all? And Madai replied, You cannot recognize me? Yes, it is a miracle which has brought me here. The Lord wants the greatest sinner on earth to bear witness to his infinite mercy, and the choice has very naturally fallen upon me. The man yet hesitated to accept Madai at his word. Men like him who have never known what self-control is, who are fitful, self-willed and passionate, are accustomed to perform many mad acts. Possibly he is sincere now, but how long can a man like him remain a penitent? But Madai had been saved. Everything about him showed that Madai had obtained the grace of a man born again. A servant of God has his distinctive features, which mark him out from others. He is sweet. He emits sweet fragrance. He speaks music. His company is soothing, ennobling, and fascinating. Well, Madai in a short time became a potent influence to spread the yoga of bhakti or devotion. The greatest sinner on earth soon began to be regarded as a saint. He himself, with a spade in hand, 
prepared a bathing ghat, which is known as Madai Ghat. Madai lives in his descendants, who are now proud of their ancestor, who bore testimony to the infinite mercy and love of God in the person of Lord Goranga. All glories to Lord Goranga. All glories to Lord Nityananda. All glories to their merciful servants who bless the world continually by chanting the great mantra of deliverance. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. This program was brought to you by Radio Krishna. The musical selections and the engineering were under the direction of Vaibhavi Devidasi. Your narrator was Amala Bhaktadas.